0: Welcome, everybody, to episode number 25 of the Average Jake Firefighter Podcast. I'm your host, Robbie Owens, from the Average Jake Firefighter blog. Your father was seduced by the dark side of the Force. He ceased to be Anakin Skywalker and became Darth Vader. When that happened, the good man who was your father was destroyed. So what I told you was true from a certain point of view. Many of the truths we cling to depend greatly on our point of view. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, opening the podcast with a Star Wars quote. uh, If you remember the Risk is Our Business podcast, I opened with one of the greatest speeches on risk, at least I think so, by Captain Kirk. You guys know if you've listened to the podcast for any length of time, I'm a movie nerd, and specifically, I love Star Wars, Star Trek, all that kind of stuff. And uh, the theme of this podcast, or the interview that we're going to ha- get to later in this podcast, is all about trying to change your perspective. And kind of the theme of this entire podcast is is trying to broaden your perspective or give you a different perspective. And so, what better way to talk about perspective or point of view than with one of the greatest speech on point of view from Obi-Wan Kenobi when he's revealing to Luke that Darth Vader really is Anakin Skywalker. Uh, To delve into that, specifically the definition of perspective, a particular attitude toward or way of regarding something, a point of view. So our perspective really determines everything. Okay, the perspective we have on a particular topic, subject, person, uh, organization, anything determines how we feel about it. And the only way to to change that is to change the perspective. You have to look at it from a different angle or hear a different opinion or hear a different perspective. I'm a firm believer that perspective and perception are our realities. And so in order to change those you have to you have to 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 flip the script if you will. And I think that that's what you're going to get today with the interview we have with Nicole Strait. Nicole is a rural volunteer firefighter from Kansas and she's going to blow your mind with the challenges and the, the, the struggles of the rural volunteer that, by the way, is protecting a large portion of our country. Everybody likes to focus on the big fire departments. Everybody likes to focus on what they're doing. When in reality, though, majority of the firefighters in the United States are, are volunteer firefighters and mostly are in some rural, small rural cities. So I really think you're going to enjoy the interview with Nicole. But before we get to that, um, I would be remiss if, not, if, like always, I did not um, thank some of the people that are involved in supporting me in this endeavor. The first of which, uh, Taylor's Tins. Taylor's Tins is a metal helmet front company. These things are awesome. I wear one on my helmet every day. It's been into fires, it's fallen, and it looks like it did the day that I got it. Uh, it's awesome. Go to www.taylorstins.com to get you a Taylor's Tins today. Stop burning up leather helmet fronts and start wearing Taylor's Tins. The second's gonna be Vanguard Safety Wear. Vanguard Safety wear is the makers of the MK1 Fire Glove. Those things are made for work. I wear them again every day on my gear, and they're awesome. Every call, every fire I go to, every training I go to, they just keep getting better. They are literally the best fire gloves I've ever worn. Um, And if you don't believe me, there are guys, I've recommended them to guys in my departments. And I had a guy the other day come up to me and said, Robbie, those gloves that you recommended are the best fire gloves that I've ever worn. I cannot believe I've never worn these things. How can we get them in our department? How do you get them in your department? Go to VanguardSafetyWear.com or DingusFire.com and get you a pair of MK1 fire gloves. They're made for work. And again, just thank you to everybody. Who continues to listen to the podcast? Um, the last two podcasts have been about search, and they've been some of my most listened-to episodes since I've been doing this. We're 25 episodes deep. I never even thought we'd get this far. Uh, I feel like we've got a lot of momentum going. This interview today is going to be phenomenal. You're going to love it, and I've got some other great stuff coming down the uh, coming down the pike for some great interviews, uh, working on getting an interview with John Buttrick from Coastal Fire, talking about respectful entry. Um, so we're just going to have a lot of great stuff. So stay tuned for all that stuff. But now let's get into the interview with Nicole Strait on the role firefighter perspective. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Average Jake Firefighter Podcast. Super excited to have on our guest today. Um, like I've talked about in the past... I'm trying to bring a different perspective to people who listen to this podcast. I don't want, you know, I want to interview the, the big names, but I also want to interview people that you probably haven't heard of and people that bring different perspectives because the fire service as a whole is very vast. It's not just that urban department. It's not just that big city, that big FDNY, DCFD, LA County fire departments. It's the small rural volunteer fire departments that are all over the country uh, and our guest today is, uh, is going to bring that perspective and she's going to be talking about a lot of things that maybe not a lot of people are thinking of talking about rural volunteer firefighting, talking about cancer specifically in rural volunteer firefighting and kind of being a female in a rural volunteer fire department. So I'm super excited to have on Nicole straight, Nicole, thanks for joining us on the average Jake firefighter podcast.
1: Yeah, you're very welcome.
0: All right. So Nicole, uh, you know, like I talked about in your intro, uh, you are a female rural volunteer firefighter, but, uh, so tell us your background in the fire service, how you got started, where you're, where you're a firefighter at and just how you started, you know, in your fire service journey.
1: Um, it was one of those ever since I was little, I mean, like three years old, little, I've wanted to be a firefighter. Um, And life just kind of took me all over the place and I wasn't really able to um, fulfill that until I moved out here to Kansas and um, there ended up being uh, an opening on one of the local departments. And so I already worked uh, in my professional. I'm a volunteer firefighter, but in my professional career, uh, I was a 911 dispatcher. Now I'm the emergency communications director for the county. So I, I worked side by side with the fire departments. And so when I heard that they might have an opening available, um, I went ahead and applied, and was thrilled to be accepted. On um, I'm on the Medicine Lodge City Fire Department. We are a giant department of 16 members. Uh, we only average anywhere from about 15 to 25 calls a year. So it's a very, very small rural department. We've only got three trucks. I mean, it's, it's pretty tiny compared to a lot of the bigger departments.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I would say that that's probably... You know, even though I think that's gonna like shock some people, but I think that's probably the norm out there, right? Like when people think of the fire departments, they think of, like I mentioned before, the FDNY, the the DCFD, uh, those big cities. Even here in Virginia, where I'm at the fire department that I work for is the second largest in, as as far as personnel goes uh, in Virginia. And then they think of the Fairfax counties, the city of Richmond's, but uh, I think out there, you know, especially in Kansas uh, in the Midwest areas like that, the small town, 16 member, 25 member fire departments are pretty, are pretty common. Is that something that you see uh, more regularly?
1: Absolutely. Out here, um, especially out here in Kansas, Almost all of the departments um, in Kansas are volunteer. There are some, you know, over by Wichita, up by Topeka, they're paid departments or they are, you know, paid on-call kind of thing. But the majority across the Midwest and across the nation is going to be your smaller volunteer departments. And if you look at the number of volunteers in the U.S., 70% of the fire service is volunteer. That's somewhere between 600 and 700,000 volunteers. And it's a huge portion of people that people um, within the fire service that are career tend to forget about because like you said, it a lot of the focus is on the big cities and the, the you know, the career departments and the volunteers are just kind of, you know, the ones who show up every now and then.
0: Yeah, I, absolutely. So coming from your background, coming from that small rural volunteer fire department, as you said, maybe 25 calls a year. Uh, what specific challenges are you running into out there in in the department that you're at or in the situation that you're in? Obviously, coming from my background as a volunteer, uh, I work for a pretty large suburban fire department that has some urban areas. We surround the city of Richmond, Virginia we are dealing with opioid epidemics. We're dealing with massive EMS abuse. We're dealing with, uh, you know, hazardous materials calls, uh, you know, on top of all the structure, you know, the structure fires that we deal with, you know, and, that, and that's something I think is pretty common in, in like size uh, populated areas. What specific problems are you dealing with in a small rural department that probably some people aren't even paying attention to?
1: Um, man, there's a whole plethora of them, to be honest with you. And I I don't want to necessarily. Well, that's perfect
0: because we got a lot of time to fill (laughs) those.
1: (laughs) I don't necessarily want to say that they're problems. I mean, they are, but there aren't. You look at volunteers and the volunteers are doing the absolute best that they can with what they have. Um, Obviously, you have financial challenges. When you have a small town, they don't have the money to support a big Department i'll take one of the examples Um, the fire district that I live in currently i'm not on that department, but I live in that department, they have, uh, I believe 18 members, they have seven trucks and they have an annual budget of approximately $19,000 and so. How, how do you cover your equipment, your repair costs for your trucks, your fuel, your insurance, your, um, you know, you pay your volunteers per call or per hour, depending on your department. All that has to come after out of a very small budget. So you've got that. You have response time problems. Um, and it, it's not a problem. It just is what it is. When you've got people like right now, we're in the middle of wheat harvest. If somebody's combine catches on fire, that whole field's going up. But you know where the rest of the firefighters are? they're all out in their own combines or they're out driving a semi hauling grain from the field to the co-op. It takes them time to get back to the edge of the field, get in their truck, get to the fire department. Um, so response times are always a problem. Um, and, and, and staffing as well with, with that goes hand in hand. When you're a volunteer and half of your, you know, crews are truck drivers and they're out of County, you don't have anyone to respond. And then, um, obviously like safety, uh, specifically on cancer prevention. Cause that's something, um, I just recently at the beginning of the month went and spoke at the university of Miami at the, um, the firefighters cancer symposium. And so cancer prevention is a problem and just health prevention in general, just because they don't, volunteers aren't there enough to be comfortable with deconing a truck after every call or washing their gear after every call. Um, uh, and then training is also a big one. It goes back to the volunteer. You can't, you can't force volunteers to do something. Um, I mean, you can make training mandatory, but at, at, to what extent? At some point, if you make it all mandatory... You're going to have people who don't come. And in the rural areas, if you chase off half of them, there's not a line of people waiting to join the department. I mean, you've got people who've been on the department. They're 60, 70, 80 years old. They've been on the department their entire lives, and there's no one to replace them because when you only have 200 people in your fire district, who's going to take their spot?
0: Well, yeah. I mean, as you said, there's a plethora of of problems going on. And I want to touch on each one of those individually, but, the, the thing that you just said that, that struck me the, uh, that struck me the most was the training aspect of it. Um, again, there's training standards, different, different states, different uh, you know NFPA has different training standards. I know different departments have even training standards. and you talked about the challenges of getting firefighters to att- even attend training because uh, they're living a se- second life outside of that volunteer fire department. And again, not trying to get you to tell on anybody or anything, but what is the highest level of training that the firefighters have at your fire department?
1: Um, I would say at my department and county wide, the um, firefighter one is probably about the most that people will get. Um, and simply because it, it's it's tough because you don't have enough people to really. Offer a lot of consistent training. I mean, if you want, um, like the um, the Kansas State Firefighters Association puts on, they specifically target the rural areas, and every month they go to a different part of Kansas and offer weekend long trainings, and it is phenomenal. They do a great job with it. It's offered at no cost to um, Kansas volunteer firefighters or any Kansas firefighter. But the problem is, is When you have this training and it's only like 30 miles away, but then your kids got their softball tournament the same weekend, um, it kind of it turns into a one or the other. And and so you can offer the training, but you can't force people to go.
0: Yeah, you're exactly right. I mean, and I think I think that is going to blow a lot of people away. The fact that you're protecting a community with essentially firefighter one trained uh, individuals. I'm not shocked by that. Uh, you know, coming from, again, the background that I come from, a volunteer background, and I saw a county, the county that I live in, transition from a purely volunteer fire department with a paid EMS service uh, to a completely, it, it, they call it a combination department, but it's essentially a paid fire department. They're 24 hours in just about every station. Uh, you know, every unit is staffed, every station staffed with career people. They still have volunteers that supplement. But it's pretty much a career fire department, and I witnessed that transition. Um, and there were people exactly like you said in that in our only volunteer fire department that were seventy years old that just drove trucks that didn't even have firefighter one and two. They had Evoc, and they were able to drive the apparatus to the to the uh, to the fires and to the responses. Uh, so so again, that doesn't shock me, but I think it's going to shock a majority of the people that listen to to the podcast that 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 you're protecting an entire community with a firefighter one, the most basic level of training that's out there um what kind of response do you have from the citizens uh out there that you protect when when you when you go out asking for money or you go out and and you know and they say and they want to know what level you're trained to or do they even ask do they even care
1: um i don't know that i could give you a detailed information on that because that's mm-hmm. kind of above my pay grade even i if dig I'm that here. <laughs> but i really um you know people people out here and and it's not and it's not just Kansas i am telling you right now that when you start talking about career and urban and even the suburban volunteer departments it is we're essentially talking about two completely different fire services the fire service from the city is not the same as the rural departments and it's not it is not just Kansas it is florida it is montana it is texas all of these little the majority of the rural america is staffed by these little small departments who have one or two trucks and so you're going to kind of get the same I, i don't know that any of the rural areas any of the citizens are like oh hey what's the department doing they just expect you to call they just call and expect you to come and they don't really question beyond that
0: yeah, I, I tend to agree with you. And and you used, you know, those other states as examples. I, I know here in Virginia, there are some small rural There's even some small paid departments. I just finished up going through the Virginia Chief Officer Academy with a guy from the city of Martinsville, and they have eight people on duty every day. Uh, and that's a small, small city and they can barely afford to get people trained. They can't get people to come work there because they can't afford to pay them, the competitive rates and, and all of that stuff. So, I mean, it, it is definitely a challenge, even in some small cities, paid cities. So I know it's an, it's an even bigger challenge in, in the small rural departments. Um, keeping on the kind of the training topic, what knowing the challenges that are out there, and, and, you, and you brought up some of them, uh, you know, the lack of funding, the lack of time for the volunteers, the lack of, you know, just the lack that you can't really force them to go because what are you going to do if they don't show up? What have what has your department or you specifically done to try to bridge that gap between, you know, to try to fill in that training and that you know, to bridge the gap between training experience and, and trying to meet the needs of the citizens that you serve?
1: Um, I mean, we've really tried to, uh, recently we established a training committee, um, and a couple of us who are really, who love the training aspect have been trying to come up with more training exercises and do, um, more hands-on training because it's hard. Even the guys who have had firefighter one, when you have firefighter one and you took it 25 years ago and you've only had four structure fires since then, I mean, it is, it's tough to stay on top of everything. And it's tough to stay motivated with training for something you may only do once every 10 years. And so after like a structure fire, everyone's like, oh, we need to work on this and that. Well, five years from now, they're not going to, they're going to be like, why are we doing this? You know, it's, it's hard to, to keep the motivation going for why are we training on this?
0: Absolutely. Um, And I think that even happens in career fire departments. I mean, you figure, even though, you work you know I work for a a pretty large suburban department. There are guys that go a year without going to a structure fire um you know because we 're working three shifts and so we might have we might have three or four hundred fires in a year, maybe even five hundred fires in a year, but if they don't hit on your shift or in your district the day that you're working uh i mean you you may miss that fire you know i' i've been pretty fortunate i've been to some fires this year uh you've been to about i think i've been to about five, six, seven, eight, nine or eight nine fires um you know but that's the that's abnormal uh even in a big suburban fire department and you still get people who are i don't know why we're doing this we don't ever do it there's there's no reason to keep training on it we don't need to pull hose today yada yada so on and so forth so there seems to be even in a even in a large department some similarities there with the disinterest because of either lack of calls or just the lack of you know just the lack of fires that are out there when uh you know again, you know, you you don't have to tell on yourself or anything like that. But uh, so when is the last structure fire that your fire department had?
1: We actually just recently had a structure fire. Um, It would have been last month. Oh, wow. Okay. The first we've had in a year, almost a year. Um, So we kind of had a We had a string of a few of them. And so that was very abnormal for us because I think we've had three structure fires in the last like year and a half. And gotcha. the one prior to that was about four and a half years prior.
0: Okay. Yeah. And and I think the thing that, that really, and I hear this from all the big name firefighters out there, right? Like all the big time guys that are speaking at these conferences and, and fire engineering magazine and, you know, all these that, and they talk about that experience base and they talk about, Than needing to have experience before you do certain things. In fact, uh, a guy who I totally respect, uh, Kurt Isaacson, put out a, a video a couple years ago talking about like, if you don't have any experience at this call, you know, or doing this, then it should, then you shouldn't have been on, then you shouldn't be on the nozzle or you shouldn't be. But what I think that these guys forget is that in some of these places, like where you're living at, that career fire may be their first ever fire. And they don't have any experience with that. So what are they supposed to do? Just not go? And I think that's that mentality that we've been talking about, that that role, volunteer fire department seems to be getting ignored, but they are dealing with separate challenges. They may, You may have a firefighter who has three years on the job but never has been to a fire, and the first fire he gets to is the fire of his career. But what's he supposed to do? Not join the fire department? Not go into that fire? It just doesn't make a lot of sense. To me, and and, I, and that's why I really believe that everybody has a, everybody should have a place at the table, and everybody should. And I really applaud what you're doing, specifically going and talking at the cancer symposium uh, about the challenges specific to rural volunteer firefighters, because like we've been talking about it's something that gets ignored by the majority of the fire service, even though you guys are protecting a majority of our country.
1: Yeah, and it, and it's just it's one of those ones that. Um... Sometimes the volunteer voice kind of gets drowned out. Uh, the, the focus a lot of times is so much on the, the cities that the volunteers are kind of looked at as just, you know, the the rednecks out in the field. And, but at the same time, if you look at the volunteers, they are some of the most fearless people I have ever met because they are out there. On brush fires and grass fires with 50 foot flames in jeans and a t-shirt on a truck that's a 1983 pickup that I wouldn't trust to take to the bank and they're out there in front of a head fire trying to put it out you know they they make do volunteers nationwide make do with what they have to do what they have to. And does it, is it always by the book? Heck no, it is absolutely not. Is it the safest? Is it the smartest? Not always, but they do what they have to, to get the job done.
0: I I couldn't have said it better myself. I mean, that's exactly what, what we're talking about. And I think that again, when you say that, when you say those things like being out there in jeans and a t-shirt, and you know, that's going to shock a majority of people that listen to, to most fire service podcasts. And so that's I'm really, really glad that, that you've come on and wanted to talk about it. So I want to shift gears for a second, still talking about some of the challenges, but I want to shift gears into the cancer stuff. Like, like we mentioned previously, you had a tremendous opportunity to go speak at the Firefighter Cancer Symposium. Uh, I believe it was at the University of Miami, correct?
1: Yes, they had it. Um, They hosted, it was the first ever um, cancer symposium there. Um, It was partially put on by the Firefighter Cancer Initiative. And there was over 350 um, firefighters, mostly I think there was only like maybe five of us who were volunteer, but it was um, primarily, you know, chiefs, assistant chiefs, battalion chiefs, whatever, from the larger city departments. There was research scientists. There was college professors. There was just experts in all of the fields, ranging from biometrics to equipment manufacturing to firefighting itself. Um, and they all kind of came together with the goal of trying to come up with a roadmap of how do we Reduce the cancer risk
0: for firefighters. Awesome! And so you had the opportunity to speak at that. Uh, give us, uh, give us some highlights of that talk, and, and tell us, and tell us really what the challenges are for rural volunteer firefighters when dealing with cancer. Because you just talked about how you're not really going to a lot of fires, right? Like you, you know, you're maybe not, you having two, three structure fires a year, maybe. Uh, Only about 25 calls a year. And so I can hear the I can hear those big name fire departments again going, well, what's she talking about? These guys aren't you're not you just said you weren't going any fires. What is the cancer risk for a rural volunteer firefighter that's only going to have a fire or two maybe in their career? Uh, So talk about that.
1: Absolutely. Um, The the biggest thing uh, that I wanted to get across to them was that there's a like we talked about, there is a lot of challenges for volunteers, but specifically related to cancer prevention. So the three big ones that I wanted to hit on while I was there was time. And finances and the rural culture. So the first one was time. We talked about it before, um, and I'll use the example that I had for you know the combine fire. Right now, if we had a combine fire, our firefighters and I know this because I'm friends with most of them, would be out in their fields. If they got a call, they'd go to the station, get their gear, take the trucks, go out to the field. They're gonna put that combine out, which while it's burning is obviously you know putting out carcinogens. They may or may not be wearing their bunker gear, which is common nationwide. It's not just Kansas. That's in rural departments. It's common. Um,
0: I would then, say it's common in even some big departments. Uh, maybe yeah. <laughs> if you just get on the University of YouTube for two seconds, you'll find you know career firefighters that should know better because they're going to their 10th fire a day, sticking their heads in windows with nasty, thick smoke and all that stuff. So I think it's pretty common nationwide.
1: Yeah, I would agree with you, but... So they're going all of that. And then what are, you know, the, their, the, the catchphrase that they keep throwing out there, is, shower within the hour. Everybody keeps hearing it. Well, these guys don't have time to go home and take a shower and change their clothes. They're getting back in their truck and going back out to their field because they got to finish harvest. It's time sensitive. Or, for example, we had um, one of the other local departments had a structure fire and it happened. I think the call came in around 1130 at night. Well, what happens at six o'clock in the morning when your firefighters who've been out working that structure fire all night have to go home, change their clothes real quick and try and get to work for eight o'clock in the morning? They don't have time. They're not showering. They don't have time to shower. They've got to get to their jobs. And so a lot of times they're leaving their jobs to go to the fire and then go right back to their jobs. And so obviously they're taking that with them. Um, and a lot of it, it comes back to, you know, they talk about you wash your gear, wash your gear after this call, wash your gear after that call. And I think this is where it kind of comes into where a lot of your uh, city firefighters are going to be like, well, volunteers don't have as much of a risk. The difference is, is that we may only have one structure fire. Say we have one structure fire a year. Well, when you're wearing your gear at that structure fire, we all know that all the carcinogens get in your gear every call that that volunteer firefighter goes on after that if they don't wash their gear they're just putting all that stuff back on their body and it doesn't matter it may be one structure fire but then they're exposing themselves every car wreck every vehicle versus deer every grass fire every call for a cow in a well anything that they go on that they're wearing their bunker gear they're just re-exposing themselves whereas the city guys They come back from a gear, they put one set of gear in the washer, they grab their other set of gear, put it on the truck. They're reducing their exposure because they have two sets of gear. They have washers. We have the closest extractor washer to us is about 35 miles away. And we only have one set of gear. So if I take everybody's gear up there and wash it after a structure fire and we get another structure fire, nobody has any gear. So that's the the time aspect of it is, is one of the the big things. Um, The other one, one of the other ones that, that we talked about uh, a little bit earlier is, is the finances. So say somebody in a lab somewhere develops a set of bunker gear and they come and say, if you wear this set of bunker gear, I guarantee you that you will never get cancer. So, you put it on the market, you put a price tag of, what, $3,000? That'd be pretty fair for a, a set of gear that could guarantee that, right? Absolutely. So, let's take another one of the I'll, – I'll use one of the other districts in my county, for example. They're the largest district um, in the county. They cover approximately 1,000 square miles. They have um, nine stations, about 75 firefighters, and an annual budget of about uh, $267,000. Um, so that sounds like a more reasonable number. But if now you have to buy 75 sets of gear at three thousand dollars a piece, I'm not great with numbers, but I think it's like two hundred and twenty-five thousand dollars. How are you supposed to pay for the maintenance of all your trucks and your stations and stuff like that when you just spent that much on gear? The money for uh this the safety gear is just not there because you have to try and um keep your trucks running. I have never worked a big fire either as a dispatcher or a firefighter that we did not have trucks that had to go out of service for repairs afterwards. And a lot of it is because we have hand-me-down equipment. We've got old trucks. We've got leftover forestry service trucks. You know, all of the gear and the equipment that's not, they they deem it not really usable or not really efficient for for the bigger departments gets auctioned off. And it comes to the small volunteer departments. And so um, financially, it's just not really an option. You can either buy a set of bunker gear so someone has a second set, or you can put fuel in your truck. Those are really your two options.
0: Yeah, and it's really not much of an option. And what you're talking about, too, is just one set of gear. Um, You're not even delving into the, the cost of maintaining and, you know, getting us outfitting everyone for a second set of gear, uh, which is another enormous cost. And and a lot of that doesn't make sense to some small volunteer fire departments because it's a set of gear that may sit on the shelf for a year before you ever really need it. Um, That's
1: that's one of the things too, is that they don't a lot of the, that kind of ties into the last point that I had talked about was the rural culture. A lot of the rural departments, they just don't see a need. They say, well, you know, I've got my gear, but I don't wear it very often, so why do I need new gear? You know, uh, when I was preparing for my um, presentation over in Miami, I asked one of my friends from, uh, he also lives in Kansas, but he works quite a ways away in another department. I said, hey, I said, just out of curiosity, um, how long have you had your gear and how many times has it been washed? And the first thing he asked was, was was this question anonymous? And I said, absolutely. (laughs) he told me that he had had his gear for 14 years and had never been washed. Wow. So, and that's one of those things. And that's normal. That is normal. If you walk into, I can tell you right now, I'm picturing a department that I've been in that's several counties away and you walk in there and I'm pretty sure that there is bunker gear hanging on that wall that's older than I am. Wow. I mean, it, And that that's normal. They just grab whatever's there. They get the forestry service is done with their, you know, wildland gear. So they- they put it up and they give it to the departments that need it and the rural departments can't buy new gear. So they just take the, the
0: hand-me-downs. Yeah. So, so that speaks to, so what kind of if any sort of gear replacement plan is there? I mean, is it just that it, you basically wear it till it wears out or like if it gets a hole in it, you, you would maybe send it somewhere to get it stitched or repaired, or is it just kind of make do just kind of like everything else?
1: Um, a lot of your departments are just, you, you kind of make do. At a lot of your departments, a lot of the guys don't wear their gear, especially like out in grass fires. They, uh-huh. A lot of them don't. And so, um, I mean, obviously there are departments that buy new gear. My department just uh, in the last couple of years bought almost everybody new gear, but that was the old gear was old, old. And so, I mean, they're trying to, and a lot of the departments are trying to get better and they're trying to get more. But again, a lot of it comes down to finances. It's just, you you have to try and pick one or the other. And it's tough. I mean, and I, I do not envy the men who are in leadership roles in rural departments because a lot of them are, they they have to try and, and choose one or the other. and, And how do you, How do you choose between them?
0: Yeah, it's almost like an impossible decision. I mean, when you brought up the example earlier of either buy a set of gear or put fuel in the truck, it seems like a no brainer, right? Like you, you would, you, you have to have fuel in the truck in order to be able to go to a response, but you're putting firefighter, possibly firefighters lives, lives and livelihood at risk. So it really is kind of a tough, it's, it's a tough nut to crack.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, and I don't know that there's a you know, I don't know if there's a great answer to it. I really don't. And and it's it's the whole situation is is a difficult one.
0: So so keeping in the kind of financial uh arena, what uh what steps you know, and you can talk about your county, your department, you specifically what kind of funding streams are you trying to add additionally? Are are you seeking out grants? Do you do fund drives? Like, how are we getting anything extra other than that, than the minimal budget?
1: Um, like, one of the departments does a chili feed once a year for, they get, they get money for um, fundraising and stuff like that. Uh, and a lot of it, the Kansas State Fire Marshal's Office offers a grant. I believe they upped it this year. Uh, I think last year was about $200,000. And this year, I believe it's about 400000 But don't quote me on that. I heard that they were increasing it. But I don't remember exactly how much to. Um, but most of that covers like replacement equipment and firefighter physicals and extractor washers. And um, the fire marshal's office has been pushing really hard to get extractor washers out. And so I, I believe last year, every department that applied for a grant for a washer was able to get one. And so there's programs like that but again a lot of it is that it's not rural volunteer departments aren't really visible it's not you don't see your rural trucks parked out in front of the grocery store because you're getting food like the only time you see them is if they're headed to a grass fire or headed wherever I mean it's not I don't know that the the rural communities and in a lot of your rural communities either most everybody has either is on the department or has been on the department or their dad or their uncle or their brothers on the department. Um, So,
0: yeah. 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 No. Well, I mean, that seems like there's some steps being taken in the right direction, but it, it's, it's not going to be for the firefighters that are currently on the department. Right. I mean, like it is, but it's really more for the future. Would that, does that, would you agree with that?
1: I do, and and a lot of that ties back to the rural culture, and, and not just in, in cancer prevention, which is, you know, the what I, I spoke on there, but um, the rural culture is fiercely independent, and they are very much, we're going to do it on our own, we don't need help, we don't want help, um, and they do their own thing, and when, like, for example, when it comes to, to cancer prevention, they don't see... Um, they they know. Every, most firefighters, I think, know that firefighting can cause cancer. The exposure to carcinogens can cause cancer. We know that males are at an increased risk of prostate and testicular cancer and that, you know, we know this. It's, it's, most volunteers have heard it or seen it or been aware of it. But a lot of the rural culture says, well, that's kind of just the risk you take. You know, you can't, I, I keep getting told you can't research the danger out of firefighting. And that's true. Firefighting will always be dangerous. So if you look on the inside of any piece of bunker gear, it says that firefighting is an inherently ultra hazardous activity you you can't make it safe and so a lot of your rural departments and the members on the rural departments have been doing it for so long that it's kind of just they're like well if I get cancer then all well I mean it, it just comes with the territory um so the rural mindset is is a huge challenge and and just from safety perspectives and training perspectives and I think um it's going to take time for that culture to change. And in a lot of ways, I don't know that it's ever going to change. You can't. Um, and, and you know, I mean, obviously being firefighters, firefighters are some of we are some of the most stubborn people on the planet. And if someone tells us you have to do this, what, what are we going to do? We're probably not going to do it. So <laughs> take that and multiply that by your people who are already so independent and are used to doing everything on their own. That it, it's a it's a tough it, it's a tough um, challenge for sure.
0: Yeah. And again, we still see that, you know, in, in, in here in Virginia, even in central Virginia, uh, while, you know, some of the central Virginia area, the Tri-Cities area, you know, Richmond area is grown up. We still have several very rural areas that are serviced by volunteer fire departments. In fact, I mean, there was a fire chief that just got fired in a volunteer fire department uh he was the chief of the department for the whole county but it was mostly a a volunteer fire department and he was trying to i guess push career people and and doing some things that i guess the the just the rural culture just was not ready for and they they got rid of him. i mean it just was that you know again kind of that hard-headed you know like all right well if you don't want to listen to us we're just going to go find somebody who will and uh you know so that's we still see that here even in even where i'm at so let's uh Let's jump to what you what do, what do we think you can do or, or how I'm trying to figure out how to phrase this. And I guess the best way to phrase it would be if you take the, the, the culture that, you know, and the challenges of the volunteer and rural fire service. What do you think we can do to get people more interested in the fire service, like recruit volunteers? How do we get them in? How do we get them to stay? And how can we increase that level of training?
1: Oh, well, again, like I said, in rural areas, your recruitment is tough, because there's just not a huge population to draw from. I mean, there's really not. And so, like I said before, most you look in these smaller communities, and most everybody is either on the department or is related to someone on the department. I mean, just about everybody who has any desire to has done it before. And I mean, it's, the recruitment part is hard. The retention part, I I really don't know that there's as much of a problem with retention in the rural departments necessarily as there is possibly in the career departments, which I don't, like I said, I'm not career. I've never been career, so I, I don't know that I can necessarily say that with any sort of confidence, but... I look at the departments that I see here and you've got I mean there's firefighters who have been on since they were, you know, 15 because back you know they're 70 something now when they were, you know, 13, 14, 15 it was completely all right for them to go out and fight fire and they've been doing it their entire lives and a lot of them you see once they get on they kind of stay on until they can't do it anymore.
0: Outstanding, outstanding. Um so we're getting close to where we've been talking for about 40 minutes. Um, I kind of want to start to put a bow on the on the interview a little bit. Uh, any kind of final thoughts that you would have or anything that, that we haven't talked about that you want to bring up? Uh, any message out there to other volunteers, maybe even urban firefighters, about, you know, just the specific topic and the challenges that you're having?
1: Oh, you know, to any other volunteers, and, and I really hope, I really, really hope that there's some other volunteers who are listening because, like I said, we make up 70% of the fire service in the U.S., and most of the time we don't have a voice, and we don't – it's not – and that's why I did not – when they asked me to come speak in Florida, I did not feel qualified, and I actually turned them down initially. But I started to think about it, and, you know, I talked to some of my mentors, my fire mentors, and I realized that if I didn't go and speak – there was gonna be 700,000 people who didn't have a voice at that symposium. And so, you know, if you're a volunteer, speak up, you know, share your experiences, be proud of what you do and who you are because volunteers, we may not have the experience and the training and the call volume, but we're not any less firefighters than career firefighters. I mean, we are all still firefighters. Um, And for, you know, the career ones, you know, see don't discount volunteers I know a lot of the career it's I and I've heard it and I've seen it and you know there's the, the always the jokes you know about careers versus volunteer and we're all fighting on the same team here and it's you know we might be your kind of you know your weird cousin that shows up to the family reunion that you're all like wow what a redneck but we're all still in the same family. And so if you can't, if you've got a training organization that, you know, works with volunteers, volunteer your experience, man. I love, I love sitting down and talking to career firefighters because I learned so much because they see stuff every day that I don't. And to be able to talk to them and be like, Hey, how did you handle this? Or even just, just hearing about their calls. Like I can't, I, I can't, move to a city you know, my career's here, my family's here, my farm's here. I can't move to go be a career firefighter, even though I would give anything to, but I love kind of living vicariously through other firefighters. Don't just shun us because we don't show up to work every day and do what you do.
0: Wow. wow. That, that's great. And I, and I, and I think that I'm glad that you went and spoke at that symposium because you're hundred percent right. There is a lack of voice for volunteer firefighters, Rule, even suburban volunteer firefighters. There's a lack of a voice out there for, for the, the organizations and the the group of the fire service population that you guys are serving. And I totally agree with you. Uh, what you said at the end, it's like there's two different fire services and and there really is. And yours deserves As much of a voice especially when your population is far exceeding what we have on the career side uh so i commend you for for you know going out there and and talking even if it made you uncomfortable and i really appreciate you continuing to share that message uh here on the podcast for all the listeners and i guarantee this is going to blow some people's minds when they press play on this episode of the podcast uh so as we're starting to wind down if someone wanted to get in contact with you, if someone wanted to continue this discussion uh, outside of the podcast, if someone wanted you to come speak at their symposium, because I think that you'd be great for that, uh, how can they get in touch with you? What are you, your, your social media, anything that you're willing to put out there for people to get in contact with you?
1: Yeah, they can. Um, I mean, absolutely call, text me. Um, my number is pretty easy. It's a New York number. If you got a pen, you want to write it down. Uh, it's 518. 518- eight, six, zero, four, nine, eight, one, call or text me anytime. Um, it's probably the easiest way to get in touch with me. And I mean, I'd be happy to anyone, even if, if you're a volunteer and you're like, Hey, I just need someone to talk to you. Call me. If you're a career and you want to tell me that you think I'm off my rocker, that's fine too. I you know, I'll take any feedback, but um, I just appreciate the chance that you've given me to, to kind of, to speak out and um, to be a voice for us as a whole.
0: Well, no, the pleasure is all mine. Like I said, I know when you initially uh, texted me and just kind of were talking about the podcast, uh, and you told me your story, and you told me about going and talking to Miami. I mean, that I, I immediately was like, "You got to come on the podcast and talk about this. Like, <laughs> this is this is a, this is a story that needs to be told, and this is a perspective that needs to be told." So, I really appreciate you coming on uh, and and doing that. So, uh, thank you again. And uh, like I said. Go talk, you know, call Nicole, uh, get her perspective, get her signed up for your conference, because I really think that she's got a, uh, a valuable message. Hey, if they want to hear your speech from the uh, cancer symposium, where can they go to find that?
1: Um, if you Google, um, it should be the 2019 Firefighters Cancer Symposium. Um, I believe the web address is www 2019 firefighter cancer symposium. I'm not hundred percent sure, but if you Google it, it'll get there. There is a, uh, tab that says watch. Um, if you click on that, all of the sessions are there. Um, there was some fantastic ones. Um, there was sessions on, um, women's biometrics on, uh, uh obviously mine on volunteer departments there was there was just a ton of information that was given There was a lot of really good um sessions uh there's you definitely should check them out
0: well awesome well nicole again cannot thank you enough for coming on thank you for sharing your perspective thank you for sharing your voice with me and all the listeners of the average nick firefighter podcast we really appreciate it thank you What a tremendous interview with Nicole Strait. I cannot thank her enough for coming on. She knocked it out of the park. It was exactly what I was hoping it was going to be with her bringing that struggle, that perspective of that rural firefighter who continually just goes out there, gets it done, and serves the community that they honored to serve. And really protecting their own community. These guys are farmers, they're plumbers, they're truck drivers, and they're servicing the community that they live in. And they're protecting the community that they live in because if they don't, who will? And they don't care about your thinking that they should have a lot of experience before they go do something. They just roll up their sleeves and go do it. So, I mean, just a tremendous amount of respect for Nicole and everything that they're doing out there, uh, in rural America. Um, you know, wow. I just, it, the, the interview really blew me away. I was speechless at some of the stuff that that she was bringing up because of those things. But, uh, you know, with that being said, uh, you know, give Nicole, a, give Nicole a call. She's got a great perspective. Um, go look on to the uh, Firefighter Cancer Symposium website and listen to her part of the speech. It really is, uh, it rehashes some of the things she talked about in the podcast, but she does go a little more in depth into it. Um, and there's a PowerPoint to accompany it as well, so you maybe get some additional points there. Uh, with that being said, kind of trying to pot, uh, to tie up the end of the podcast. Where am I going to be? Uh, you know, so the last podcast, I said that I'd been accepted to teach at the Virginia State Firefighters uh, Conference, which was now First Responder Virginia. Plans have changed. I'm not going to be able to make that conference. So anybody that signed up for, for the class that I was going to teach, Engine Search, uh, thinking that I was going to be there, I apologize. I'm not going to be able to make it to that conference. S- schedules change. Plans change. I was unable to get time off for work and uh my kids have a wrestling event that i need to be at uh so you know i was able i was unable to get time off to teach the one day and then the second day a tournament came up that my kids are going to go to and so i need to be there for them um i think you know as we've talked about before need to have good work life balance and uh So I'm going to get good work and life balance uh, that week because I'm going to work and I'm going to go to this wrestling tournament. So I hope you guys understand. I hope that no one uh, specifically was going to First Responder Virginia just to hear my class. If you want to hear it that bad, um, there's a couple ways you can get it. One, you can listen to the podcast on Engine Search. It talks about a lot of the concepts Uh, You don't get some of the hands-on stuff or some of the you know the showmanship stuff But uh, you will get the basic concepts Two, I have a lot of articles written on engine search Uh, They're on the fire engineering training uh, Blog and they're also on the average jake firefighter blog so you can look onto them You can read them and you can get a lot of the concepts and the theory behind what we're doing and why I do what I do lastly You can get in contact with me. You can get in contact with me through Twitter, through LinkedIn. Uh, Twitter is at AverageJakeFF. LinkedIn, at Robert Owens. Uh, I've put my my phone number out there on the podcast several times, 804-641-8310. Give me a call. Uh, we can set something up. I do travel. I can come out to your department, and we can do an engine company search class, or we can do any other kind of class you're looking for. Uh, you know, I've got a lot of good friends, and if I'm not the guy, uh, I can point you in the right direction of someone who can come and meet you uh, and accommodate your class. So, you know, get in contact with me if it's something you're looking for. Where I am gonna be at the end of August is the County Fire Tactics Water on the Fire. Some uh, conference, I am so looking forward to that. Uh, if you remember later or earlier this year, I went to the uh, County Fire Tactics Officer Development Program with John Norman, a week in Pensacola. This one's not going to be a week; uh, it's only three days. But man, it is going to be jam packed, all engine, ready to rock. Uh, you know, just Ray McCormack, the Brass Tax Hard Facts guys, Dennis Legear, Kurt Isaacson. Jerry Herbst, uh, I mean, uh, I think uh, Bill Gustin's going to be there. Uh, The guys from Ventaner Search teaching canned confidence. Uh, Chris Martin from Elkhart Brass. It's just going to be a phenomenal engine company conference. And there's already, like, other fire service guys out there. Kyle Ramagus from Smoothbore Cartel and Engine Company Resurrection is going to be out there. Uh, I mean, just all sorts of great guys that are going to be coming to the water on the fire conference Uh, You know, if you are out there at the Water on the Fire conference, come up to me, say hi. Uh, We'll go share a beer and some stories. Uh, It's going to be great. I'm so looking forward to that. Um, Everything else on the calendar is pretty wide open to the end of the year. So if you're looking for somebody to come speak, you're looking for somebody to do something, give me a call, email me, uh, direct message me on one of the social media channels, and uh, we can talk about it. Uh, You know, lastly, you know how we do at the end of all these podcasts. Make sure you're spending one hour in the gym working on your physical fitness. Make sure you're spending one hour every day reading something about our job, watching YouTube videos, doing something, spending time in that library, getting your fire service education level up a notch. And then make sure you're spending one hour every day doing some sort of hands-on training, putting your hands on the tools that we need to do our job. If you do that, I guarantee you'll become a pretty phenomenal firefighter. Thanks for listening. Stay safe but aggressive. I'm out.